Hey everybody, and welcome to the Big Bass Podcast, a fishing show where size matters. My name is Ken Duke. And I'm Terry Battisti. Our producer and engineer is Nathan Benson. Before we kick off this episode of the Big Bass Podcast, we'd like to ask you a favor. If you're coming back to the show because you enjoyed the previous episodes, or if you're a first-time listener, please click the subscribe button and the notification bell now. By subscribing and hitting the bell, you'll be notified of each new post, and you'll really help us to build a channel into something more special than it already is. We hope you'll also check out our website, thebigbasspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our shows, special bonus materials, our exclusive Big Bass Podcast calculator, and lists of all the state and world record bass. So, Ken, let's get started. I'm ready, man. I'm ready. You know, Terry, we're dropping this episode uh, shortly before April 1st, April Fool's Day. And this is about an April Fool's prank. Uh, the deeper you dive into these big fish claims, especially claims of new world records, the more you realize that there are a lot of jokers out there, and this one was no exception. It starts in uh, Sporting Classics magazine. And uh, Sporting Classics was a publication that started in South Carolina in 1982 that targeted uh, high-end readers, folks who had a lot of money to spend, a lot of, mostly things like fly fishing, big game hunting, stuff like that. There were Rolex ads on the back of the magazines. Uh, they didn't do any how-to, they didn't do the, the where-to stuff. It was all about atmosphere and gear and stuff like that. And Terry, I know you had a, a connection with, with Sporting Classics. Yeah, uh, so, one of my best friends uh, that, you know, I fished with when I lived in northern Idaho when I was going to graduate school, uh, his dad actually wrote for Sporting Classics, uh, Paul Quinnett. And uh, Paul's written a couple of books, Darwin's Bass and Pavlov's Trout. Uh, and, and he wrote for, for Sporting Classics. And that's how I found out about the magazine and, and the special clientele that, uh, that they were targeting. So yeah. well, we're talking about this, a particular issue, folks. And if you have a chance to find it, uh, if you can't track down the magazine itself through eBay or ABE books or something like that, you can absolutely find this story online. If you search sporting classics and Roy Greer, G R E E R, but we're referring specifically to the March, April, 1997 issue. At this point, Sporting Classics has been around for about 15 <laughs> years. The editor is a, a, a gentleman by the name of Chuck Wexler. Uh, he's not just the editor, he's part owner of the magazine, and he's got a financial stake in this thing, so he's trying to drum up some business and some subscriptions. And for six years prior to this March, April, 97 issue, he has been looking for a way to do a particular April Fool's joke all about a world record bass and to hear Chuck Wexler say it he says I couldn't do it until we had the technology to make a 13 pound four ounce Florida bass look like a 22 pound seven ounce bass exactly yeah it, it, his inspiration for this whole prank came uh, from a Sports Illustrated issue uh, April 1st 1985 uh, that was titled the curious case of Sid Finch by George Plimpton uh, and it's essentially a 28-year-old pitcher who gets to try out with the New York Mets. He's got a 168-mile-an-hour fastball, pinpoint control, he heavy hiking boot on his right foot. 
He plays the French horn. He learned the art of the pitch while meditating in Tibet. I mean, the story is just out of this world. It's it's crazy. <laughs> and, and Plimpton, the guy who wrote the Sports Illustrated story, he was a legit writer. He was a yeah. uh, Harvard-educated, very highbrow guy. And he got, he got his claim to fame through what would be called participatory journalism. Uh, he had an interest in sports, did a lot of work for Sports Illustrated. Um, he would do things like uh, make an arrangement with an NFL team, in this case the Detroit Lions, to go to their training camp and, and try out as a quarterback. It led to his book, Paper Lion. He did the same thing in other sports, like baseball, basketball, hockey, golf, boxing, even acting. He tried all these different activities and would write about them and, and did very well at it. Sold a lot of magazine articles, even turned a few of them into books. And uh, probably his most famous effort was Paper Lion, but certainly the next most famous would have been the curious case of Sid Finch. And the magazine article he wrote in that issue of Sports Illustrated turned into a best-selling novel. And it's still one of the most popular stories ever published in Sports Illustrated. You can go on eBay and find Sid Finch bobblehead dolls that'll run you a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it, it's crazy, you know. And you know, But it, it, it's really, really kind of cool that, that 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 article touched Weschler in such a way that he would want to try to do something on par with it in sporting classics and and it re what really impressed me is that you know sporting classics is not a bass fishing magazine uh, it is like you said at the at the outset it's about fly fishing and high end fly fishing for you know trout in in the uh, Argentina and stuff like that and. And, and hunting, you know, big game in, in Africa. Uh, but uh, he's got this story in his head, and finally he, uh, he, he goes to, 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 to have writ, write it and, and, and put it in the magazine. So If you're looking for the average Sporting Classics uh, reader, he's probably right now saying something like, Duwamba, please hand me the Benelli. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, or Poupon, um, the Grey Poupon. Yeah, Grey Poupon. <laughs> uh, so in, uh, in March, April of 97, uh, Sporting Classics run, runs an article called, Has Roy Greer Caught the New World Record Bass? <laughs> and we got, Terry, we've got all the, we've, I've scanned virtually yeah. the entire magazine so that we're going to be able to show people all the stuff we're referring to. The author of the article is a, is a man by the name of Richard Bean. And uh, Mr. Bean passed away uh, in 2019. But he was a pretty prolific author and also a uh, English professor and poet uh, at the University of Wisconsin. He wrote a lot of hunting and fishing articles for Sporting Classics, Field and Stream, and Wisconsin Outdoor Magazine. Uh, he writes this, uh, this Roy Greer story in first person. He tells us that he was visiting the uh, Sporting Classics offices on February 18th, 1997 when an old angler stopped by to show off a big fish. <laughs> yeah, so the, uh, the angler is uh, Roy Greer. He's an angler from Gillisonville, South Carolina. Uh, it, it's a real place in Jasper County, South Carolina. And uh, it's got a population of 183 in two, uh, 2020, so a small town. Uh, Roy Greer is played by a, a gentleman by the name of Joe Taylor from Columbia, South Carolina, 
the father of Sporting Classic Circulation Director Elizabeth Davis. And, uh, and, and when we say he played uh, Roy Greer, really what Joe Taylor did was he was he was the image of Roy Greer in all the pictures. So the pictures that they ran of of Roy Greer are actually this guy Joe Taylor. Right, exactly. So supposedly he comes in, he's wearing old hunting boots, a long sleeve white you know undershirt, frayed gray pants, and a Dale Earnhardt number three baseball cap. Uh, I mean, just typical you know old you know small town guy from from south carolina he's got a he's got a limp he drags his left leg uh he worked for the railroad which is of course fake and his leg was crushed in an accident as a result of you know him working on the railroad uh so he had this prosthetic leg and therefore he's got the nickname of peg and, and then the uh, name of the uh, the name of the railroad, as I recall, Terry, was the B and S Railroad, and that will come into play <laughs> later. Oh man, yeah. So so Greer takes uh, you know the writer and editor out to the parking lot to see his fish in a cooler in the back of his car, and though it's it's huge, he says he caught a bigger one, uh, and they tell Greer that he could become a millionaire just because. So, don't forget to check out our our, uh, our episode on how much a, a world record bass is worth. We'll put a yeah. link uh, right in here somewhere. Somewhere there. Yeah, so they take the fish uh, to weigh and measure at a nearby Piggly Wiggly, of course. And the thing comes out at 22 pounds, 8 ounces. You know, 4 ounces bigger than, than Perry's world record at the time. Uh, and... You know, they later have the fish uh, weighed, measured, certified by South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. It comes in at 22.7, uh, still beats the, the two pound or the two ounce limit that, that IGFA requires. It's got a length of 31 and three quarter inches and a girth of 29 and an eighth of an inch. And the Big Bass Podcast calculator estimates this at 22 or 21 and a half pounds, which is Damn close to, you know, this could have definitely been a world record class fish. I mean, these guys, they did their homework. They knew what those measurements had to be. Uh, they kept the bass frozen uh, in the uh, South Carolina Department of Natural Resources freezer. Uh, the truth was the opposite. It was a 13-pound, 4-ounce Florida bass that had been frozen uh, and then thawed out for the project. So... You wanna... Yeah, but the story is that the South Carolina <laughs> DNR has the fish. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it's in their freezer. Uh, yeah. He allegedly caught this fish in an oxbow off the Savannah River using a, a new pinnacle casting rod that his nephew had given him and, a, and an old beat-up Zebco 33, the official reel of record chasers. Yes. Uh, as we will find in, in, in multiple <laughs> shows on the Big Bass Podcast. Uh, he was yeah. using 17-pound test, strand, clear blue monofilament. Uh, and his lure was a four-inch wooden plug. He described it, it was described in the article as a, a wide-bodied crankbait kind of lure that was bluebird blue on top with a bright orange belly. And this was also contributed by his, his nephew, Todd. Uh, mm -hmm. In truth, which we'll talk a little bit more about later, the lure was actually a prototype bait <laughs> designed by Bobby Dennis, a, a friend of Terry's and mine, who yep. was running Norman Lures at the time. And um, uh, Wexler, for the purposes of the story, the editor, 
took one of these baits and scratched it up and stuck it in the fish's mouth for the pictures <laughs> and so forth. And of course, uh, you know, uh, Greer's got to be fishing out of something. So he's fishing, of course, out of a Sears and Roebuck John boat, uh, which is what I was doing 50 years ago, too. It was uh, green, right? It was green. They're all green. They're, they're all green. green. Yeah. But now, I mean, but now they're an amazing covered boat. in algae and, uh, and all kind of nasty gunk, but they're still green. Uh, yep. But Terry, one of the things that was kind of cool about the story, and I don't want to cut the story too much slack here. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you my critique on it a little later, but uh, there were some cool extras that they had to sell it. Tell us about some of the extra little ways they they promoted and pushed the story and presented it as true. Well, okay, so what is the number one way to promote bass fishing or a world record bass or a, anything bass-centric? The number oh, one person that you want speaking with, speaking for you, is Ray Scott. No doubt, no doubt. They get Ray Scott to could get in on this story. My question and, is, did, has, did Ray Scott ever say no to a practical joke opportunity? And oh, my guess no. is that he did not. <laughs> Ray was wonderful. One of the greatest people I've ever met in my life. And I miss Ray. Uh, and he would never turn down the opportunity to be part of a joke. Oh, especially if there was a little bit of, you know, green involved. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I, I kind of bet I kind of bet he did it for nothing. But who knows? Maybe he, got, maybe he got some cash out of the deal. Yeah. So, anyway, Scott's quoted uh, in the story is saying, there's a sad note to this because it puts the rest... To rest the legendary story of my old friend George Perry, who held the record for so many years. And then, according to Wexler, Scott supported the joke. He told me to milk it for all it was worth. There's no way, no one any bigger in practical jokes than Ray Scott, and he was having his fun. Um, so, you know, you. <laughs> yeah, and, and Ray, Ray believed in the George Perry story. Interesting that he referenced Perry. Because Ray believed the George Perry story like he believed the virgin birth. I heard him multiple times put those two events in the same sentence. Uh, so, <laughs> so he was really pushing hard. He was really promoting this thing hard for sporting classics. But not everybody was excited about this April Fool's joke. Um, uh, an outdoor writer for the Tennessean out of Nashville, um, uh, said, you know, Ray was calling people up and saying, hey, don't tell anybody I told you, but a magazine's coming out with a story about a world record bass. And not, not everybody was buying in, but Ray was pushing it hard. And, and Ray was, if not exactly the gospel, because he did have a reputation for practical jokes, yeah. you, had to, you had to at least listen if Ray Scott gave you a call. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. So the story goes on that, that Greer's nephew is allegedly paid $25,000 uh, for their international marketing rights to, to his crankbait uh, that he's designed, that this world record fish has you know, been caught on, uh, and, and production has been started. And the rights were supposedly sold to Bill Norman, and Ken's got one that's signed and, and numbered. Ken, so, Ken has two. Ken has two, Terry. Ken has two. Ken so has two. This is, this is for the Norman collectors that are watching this show. This is a crankbait that is a prototype that uh, Bobby Dennis was playing around with and did not ever take it to market. 250 of these things, and it looks like a little scooper body with a medium 
little n, or excuse me, a medium n diving lip. Uh, that's what it looks like to me. Uh, there's 250 of them around, and uh, there's the, the signature right there. Of Joe and Taylor, the guy who was could, uh, playing Roy Greer. Yep, and uh, if you can find one of them and put it in your collection, that's they're, they're worth a pretty penny, I'm sure, we'll, if anybody we'll the bidding even knows at, about it. We'll start the bidding at six figures, Terry. Okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> and that's before the decimal point, folks, before the decimal point. Yeah. No, I, I have no idea what it's worth, but it's a, it's a treasure to me for a couple of reasons. One, this is part of a, a an interesting moment in, in Big Bass history, the Roy Greer hoax. And, and two, Terry Battisti, my buddy, doesn't have one. Yeah, yeah. The, the, get your box of tears out, Ken. <laughs> they're your tears they're your tears let's make that clear yeah but, yeah, yeah. The, the box that you can that you have my all my tears in it's you know <laughs> anyway uh there's just no way i'll ever catch up to you with the, with the stuff oh, that you have oh oh you will but, but uh, i'm but anyway i'm, I'm, I'm anyway. thrilled to have that anyway, what's interesting too is is ray scott's in on the joke uh but who's not in the joke we mentioned is the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources. And after the article runs in that March, April 97 issue of Sporting Classics, they start to get calls. People want to hear about these fish. They want some authoritative entity like the South Carolina DNR to comment on it. And they'd yep. also probably like to get some pictures of the fish, which they understand to be in an SCDNR freezer somewhere. Well, people call the DNR and uh, they say, we don't know what you're talking about. And we certainly don't have any such fish in a freezer somewhere. And a spokesperson for SCDNR even said it caused quite a commotion, but it was just a gimmick to stir things up and let people know the magazine exists. Which I thought, ooh, that's like inserting the knife and even giving a little twist there. Mm -hmm. um, and even, even Wexler, the editor and part owner of Sporting Classics, had to admit the people at SCDNR must be mad at me. But you have to have a little fun. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So th there were some hints in this whole story the whole time it was it was going. <laughs> and some of these hints are pretty cool. So Ro Roy Peg Greer. Huh? <laughs> I'm just trying to provide a, 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 an appropriate physical reaction while you tell everybody about the hints. So Roy Peg Greer is an anonym. I eat the anagram, an, an, excuse me, an anagram where you mix the letters up and you can spell names or things, words differently. It's an anagram for George Perry. So Roy Peg Greer, George Perry. His nephew's last name is Posoff, which is also an anagram for spoof. Okay. It might be anonym. I'm not even sure. Anonym might be the right word here. Yeah, it's it's one of those. You mix the letters up and you spell words differently. Okay, that's, it's, that's, it's a jumble. It's a jumble. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then Taylor's employer again, as Ken mentioned a little earlier, was the Macon BNS Railroad. So, so. BS is BS, <laughs> and the name is supposed to be a clue. Uh huh. Uh, and then Wexler, you know, according to Wexler, uh, Greer is wearing a denim jacket. And the Levi Strauss label has been changed to say April Fool. Yeah, but nobody can see it. <laughs> no, it's too so, small. 
There's no way you could see it. Anyway, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll, I will vent on Mr. Wexler <laughs> in a bit. Yeah. So go ahead with the... But an important thing to know, and uh, I didn't realize this until quite recently, is there are actually two versions of the Greer story. There's the magazine version that was in that March-April 1997 issue, and then there's the online version that was posted some considerable time later. And it's important to note that there are two versions of the story because they are different, and they are significantly different. The final paragraph is what is different. And it's just a few words, but they kind of make all the difference if you're reading the story. First, I'll, I'll, I'll give you all the uh, magazine version. Uh, this is the final paragraph. It says, Certainly, if Roy's huge largemouth is declared the new world record, there will be a media blitz unlike anything the angling world has ever seen. And that runs in the April Fool's issue of 97 in the magazine. Then there's the web version. And the web version reveals the joke. The web version gives it up. And I understand why. Uh, but first, let me read that to you, too. Certainly, if Roy's huge largemouth is declared the new world record, there will be a media blitz over this April Fool's spoof unlike anything the angling world has ever seen. So all they did was add over this April Fool's spoof. But I, I understand why they did that, Terry. They don't want people 25 years later, which is basically where we are right now, yeah. scrambling around calling SCDNR and calling Sporting Classics asking about this fish. And that's their yep. way of trying to head that off. Yep. I'm not sure how effective it is because, uh, as we've <laughs> talked about before, you know, not everybody reads to the end. Um, yep. Not everybody reads carefully. Not everybody catches those five new words in the story. Just five new words. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I remember reading it, you know, when I, when I got that magazine, you know, years ago. Um, and I never paid it much attention. Um, but, yeah, I haven't. I, I need to go actually check out the, uh, the online version myself. And, and read it and look for those five words. But, yeah, nobody reads anymore to begin with, like you said. What? Yeah, exactly. You know, everybody – I read too, so. But, uh, yeah, so let's let's talk about some of the aftermath. What, what Actually, you know what? Here's what we need to say to the, to the folks who are watching <coughs> and, and, ho and hopefully enjoying the Big Bass podcast is Terry and I read so you don't have to. You just exactly. you can just listen to the show. We, we do a lot of reading. <laughs> we do a lot of reading for you. Yep. So, uh, so what, what, what ended up happening in, in, the, in the aftermath of this, you know? Yeah, well, first of all, Wexler <coughs> spent quite a bit of time patting himself on the back. Might have injured himself, probably a... <laughs> Dislocated a, shoulder. An, an ulnar nerve or something. But he's saying things like, we're having more laughs with this project than we ever thought possible. I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's as good as the George Plimpton story, but I think we struck a chord with people across the nation. The whole idea was to poke fun at the idea of bigger means better. Well, hey, the whole idea of the Big Bass Podcast is bigger is better. Um, yep. So, you know, not everybody shared Mr. Wexler's appreciation excitement. and joy and excitement <laughs> about the Roy Greer April Fool's hoax. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and you've got, you know, some comments there. We've, we've got comments from people who, who wanted to buy in. They 
they bought in maybe because of uh, of Ray Scott's involvement. But according to Wexler himself, there was one Ohio outdoor writer who called it the single greatest breach of journalistic integrity he had ever witnessed. <laughs> oh, come on, guy. I mean, get a sense of humor. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that's really... The, uh, the journalistic uh, uh, bomb that that it was, well, but our our but buddy. Then what about Bobby? What tell our buddy Bobby Dennis? <laughs> I'm going to let you tell that part. But our oh buddy Bo gosh. Bobby Dennis probably made the biggest sacrifice of anybody with regard to this story, and, yeah. and it all has to do with this right here. Well, so this crankbait right here is is actually it's got a catalog number. If you look at the back of the package. The cataloger is, excuse me, the catalog number is 419-7. And if you think about doing something with those letters or those numbers, uh, four is the month of April, one is the day, the first day of April, and 9-7 is the year 97. So the, the part number to that Norman crankbait is April's Fool's Day. 1997, which is pretty cool. But the the interesting thing about the about this bait is that the story comes out and Bobby Dennis gets an order from a West Coast jobber for 19,200 of these crankbaits and he refuses to make them. <laughs> Why? Bobby, what's well, going on? Because he knew he was gonna he knew there it was gonna be revealed at some point and, and he didn't want to have to answer to a uh, a cranky wholesaler. But, right. Uh, yeah, Bobby's Bobby's got uh, enough sense and, and just a, a smart guy. He's worked with uh, all the greats in the tackle industry through the years and mm -hmm. uh, just a, a fascinating storyteller. In fact, if you want to learn more about Bobby Dennis, you need to go over to Terry's other website bass-archives.com and uh if terry hasn't got some bobby dennis material posted already i'm sure he will at yeah, some point I, soon yep definitely we have that definitely planned out uh i've got about an hour and a half interview with him that i'm uh, still working on uh trying to make a, a story about it bobby actually tells because bobby actually grew up with cotton cordell's kid uh, and they were running uh, partners. Uh, they worked together at Cotton's place. He, he worked for Rebel. He worked for Norman. Bobby's been all over the place uh, in the industry from, you know, an early age. All right, Dr. So. Batiste, we've just told uh, the story of probably the most famous April Fool's joke in the history of Big Bass, uh, Roy yeah. Peg Greer. What's your takeaway? Oh, I think it's... it's exquisite it's beautiful uh i'm i'm actually kind of bummed out that it, it was done in sporting classics because this could have been run in bassmaster magazine and really you know gotten some weight behind it and and some momentum um you know sporting classics at the time i don't know what their circulation was uh, at that point i believe it was uh, six it, it might have been. I know. I I, I know. I I'm have. Kidding. You know. I have one of the issues. I've got two. Co <laughs> I've got two copies, and one yeah. of my copies is signed by Joe Taylor. Well, you're gonna have to Just, have me sign that copy because I'm actually in that magazine too. Yes. Yeah, show people the picture. But scan it and let's put it up in a, a properly so that people can get a good look. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, mine mine is signed by Joe Taylor 
on the biggest picture of the Roy Greer character. So just to add a little more salt in the Batiste tears. <laughs> yeah. So my takeaway is that this is this was a, a it was a great story. It was a great joke. Uh, I think we need more of this type of you know hooliganism in in fishing. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I could be as enthusiastic about the Roy Greer story as you are. I've got some issues with it. I just don't think they did they did a fair amount to sell it. Uh, getting getting Ray Scott on board that was a great move. Um, mm-hmm. But get SCDNR on board too, or or leave them out of it completely so that people aren't calling them and finding out it's wrong. Um, don't tell me that you put the the words April Fool on the man's jacket and then you don't show me a picture where I could possibly read it. Not by no stretch of the imagination could I possibly read where it says April Fool's on his shirt. Uh, Wexler said that it took him six years before he had the technology to make a 13-pound, 4-ounce frozen Florida bass look like a 22-pound, 7-ounce bass. Well, show me some evidence of that fabulous technology because yeah. you did you showed none of that in the magazine. There is one picture where the fish looks truly big, and that's yeah. the lead image for the story. But you could have done that picture just by holding it, you know, the old trick of holding your arms out and hiding your arms behind the fish. There is zero technology, zero technology involved in making that picture look good. The rest of the pictures, it looks like a really nice fish, but it, it probably looks smaller than 13 pounds, 4 ounces to me. Uh, oh. uh, so I, I don't buy that. Um, George Peg Greer, I'm sorry, Roy Peg Greer as an anonym for George Perry. Okay, I kind of like that. But making BNS Railroad is supposed to be a hint? Uh-uh. uh-uh. That's the lousiest hint I've ever heard. Um, and Todd Posoff, Posoff is an anonym for spoof? Try again. That sucked. <laughs> Way too much You're of this too... story sucked. Oh, you, you Way... need a drink. Yeah. It was it was half-assed. This <laughs> was a half-assed. No. <laughs> this was a half-assed April Fool's joke. You need to go run three miles. <laughs> I feel like He's I just had. <laughs> I feel like I just had. I put on my. Oh man. <laughs> I put on my fired-up shirt for this one. Oh jeez. All right. I'm just not going to congratulate. Him. This is nowhere near. The quality of story or the level of follow-through as the Sid Finch and the New York okay. Mets story that George Plimpton did in the 1980s. Uh, all right. So, you you know, you, you've got some guys that don't know much about bass fishing. That's obvious. Um, you know, maybe if they had done a little bit more homework, but no, I think... No, that, that's not my problem. I think, they, I think they passed off the bass stuff pretty well. They got Bobby Dennis referenced in there they they know it's a crankbait they've got ray scott involved they got the measurements right to be a 22 pound seven ounce fish mm-hmm. um, they, they said south carolina and and no one will be more shocked than me if a world record ever comes out of south carolina they just don't have the habitat they just don't have the genetics but um you know i don't i don't i don't fault them for their attention to detail i fault them for their follow-through and for what they call their (laughs) hints which sucked (laughs) oh geez oh well i think it's about time to wrap this one up don't you okay why not all right so 
Decided to slam the door on this episode of the Big Bass Podcast, but before we go, please remember to subscribe, like, share, give us a comment, review. We love talking to you guys, you know, in the comment sections. Uh, it's a small ask, but it's a big, big help for us. Uh, and don't forget to check out the website, thebigbasspodcast.com. You'll find our Big Bass Podcast calculator and our listings for record bass plus supplementary material in the episodes. It's a work in progress, but if you like the show, you'll love the website. Uh, if you want to give us a, a contact us, uh, our email addresses are Ken at the Big Bass Podcast.com, Terry at the Big Bass Podcast.com, and Nathan at the Big Bass Podcast.com. I'm Terry Battisti, and on behalf of my partners, Ken Duke and Nathan Benson, thanks for joining us. Be sure to check back next week. We'll have a new show about a different Big Bass with a story that you will not and cannot find out anywhere else. And remember, size matters.